Any, if you weren't here, like when Will made the announcement right at the beginning, because only like three people are here usually when worship starts, right? <laughs> it's youth takeover night, so I'm not Will. This is not the typical worship team. That video is not how it normally goes. <laughs> but yeah, we're um, we're just uh, we're here. We're doing our our thing. This is basically what it's like in in high school and. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different than what you're used to, if you didn't already notice um, that it's a bit different. But of course, we're going to still go through the Word together, um, but we'll finish up a little bit different than probably you're used to, so I hope you're ready for, for that part of it. But anyway, so if you're with me here, let's go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 4. We'll actually be tracking through the entire book of Philippians. Um, one time I did Romans 1 through 8. That wasn't the worst decision I ever made in my life, but it was close. <laughs> so instead, I'm just going to do four chapters of Philippians. You know? <laughs> um, uh, but for real, it was very interesting this morning because um, Will and I, we haven't spoken about like what we're teaching or whatever. We just scheduled out. He was like, hey, we're going to do youth takeover night. Uh, what day sounds good? Um, you know, such and such day. Okay, sounds cool. Sounds cool. And so I have no, and I don't, I mean, Will sets up his messages and stuff, but sometimes, you know, he'll do a week and I'll be like, oh, I didn't even get finished through my notes. So like it gets pushed back to the next week, whatever. So, you know, kind of the, the timing of like where, where his messages ends up is kind of like a mystery, even though you have the, uh, the date set, right? And um, so it was crazy to come in this morning and Will's focus was uh, twofold, right? Um, if you weren't there, check it out. Really heavy stuff to to um, focus on great study through this worthy, worthy life. But the two focuses that he had were on kind of our sexuality and our contentment, kind of these two things. And it was very crazy because what we're focused on here tonight together is what the Spirit gives us that brings us to this place of contentment, right? Because it's not enough to just say, be content be loving, be this, be that. That's just the law, right? The law can tell you that, right? Um, we, we needed something greater than that in order to take us to a place where we could be pleasing to the Lord, right? And the work of the Spirit does that through His Word, and in His Word we find all of the motivations and truths and realities necessary for us to focus on in order that contentment might be a reality in our lives. So we're going to look at that because Paul actually takes the whole book of Philippians to explain that to us. If you look at the book of Philippians, it's Paul, he's writing it when he's in jail or he's in, in house arrest in that sense. He's in Caesar's household. Anyway, he's arrested, <laughs> right? And he's writing and he's thanking the, the, the primary purpose of the letter we see towards the end. He's thanking the Philippians for the gift that they gave him, right? But in the middle of thanking them for that, he interjects this sentence that he says, not that I speak in regards to need, He's like, thanks for what you gave me, but I didn't really need it, right? He says, because I have learned to be content in all things, right? And we actually see through Philippians, he's been hinting at that the entire time because he opens up and he's like, I want you to know about my present situation that I'm in chains, but something else is on my mind that makes me realize and conclude that I'm not chained, Right? And that, that I can thrive, not just survive, but I can thrive in a situation that the world would otherwise call a situation that should make you discontent, right? Something that you should want to be out of, Paul freely embraced, right? <clears throat> one story of Paul that he, in his life, that is one of the more surprising stories, is, is when he is thrown in the Philippian jail early in his ministry, I'm in Barnabas, right? They're just hanging out, doing their thing, get thrown in jail. It's like Paul's MO. He goes to a town, he gets either uh, beat up or thrown in jail. It's the thing he likes to do, right? <laughs> anyway. And he and Barnabas decide it's a good time to start singing praise songs, right? It's a good time to thank the Lord. So he starts singing praise songs. The, the place shakes up and the... Uh, 
the, the gates of the jail open, right? Now, if I were in Paul's situation and I was like praising the Lord for sustaining me through this and then, and then the jail opened, I'd be like, all right, you set me free. It's time to go, right? Like that would be my immediate mindset. Be like, oh, okay, cool. The Lord answered my prayer, for instance, right? I was, I was kind of hoping he would get me out of jail. But Paul and Barnabas are like, no, we're going to stay, right? For the sake of who? The jailer. Like that's, that is a mindset that is so antithetical to everything that the world knows that we have to ask ourselves what is on his mind as he makes that conclusion about what he wants to do with his life, right? Like, why was he going to make that decision? How could he sit in a place where everything says, you should not be happy that you're here, and when the opportunity arises, you should get yourself out of the situation. And he concludes, no, I will keep myself here for the sake of the person who imprisoned me, right? Like, that is so surprising, right? And so we're going to explore that as we go through Philippians. Before we get there, our scripture reading, 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 6, and so I told you to turn to Philippians, but I lied. So we'll turn to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6. When we're talking about living this life where we are contented, the word is very interesting because uh, in 1 Timothy 6 here in verse 6, where he says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. He's putting this in contrast to the previous sentence that he says here about these false teachers and these people who don't consent to wholesome words of Christ. And he says that they suppose that godliness, and if you have an NKJV, it'll have, is a means um, in italics because it's actually not in there because it's the same word as gain down below. It's an acquisition. It's something to be obtained. So he's saying here, there are those who think that living godly is for their own personal benefit, right? And quite frankly, like he goes off on the money trail here about that, but we find ourselves so often in the same mindset when we think about things like, well, I just want to have peace from the Spirit, for instance, just so I can like have a nice quiet day at home, which is like not the point of why God would ever give you peace, right? You see, when we take the blessings of God and the things that he has for us and our intent in asking for them is only so that we can feel pleasured in ourselves about who we are or where we are or what we're doing, then we have missed entirely why God is offering what he's offering, right? As a matter of fact, you won't even get what God is offering. James makes this pretty clear when he talks about this discontent that might sit in your heart. As he says here in James 4, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your what? Your desires for pleasure that war in your members. You lust and you do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight in war, you do not have but you do because you do not ask. And then this lovely sentence, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures, right? Like you might take that all the way and say, you don't receive, you don't take hold of what God is offering because you think God is only offering it so you can look at yourself in the mirror and feel good about yourself, right? Like that's not the point of any of the fruits of the Spirit that we see. And it's impossible to obtain what God is offering if the mindset by which you are embracing them is not the mindset of Christ. You will be reaching instead for something else for which God has nothing for you there. Right? And so we need to retrain our minds to sit in this place where we are ready to receive the contentment, but not just so that we can sit and feel at peace, right? but so that way we can be in step with the Spirit and do what He wants to do. Because He says here, godliness with contentment is great gain. What He's talking about, He's saying, godliness is 
basically, if you wanted to like, God-likeness, right? It is being like God, so it's Christ-likeness, right? So what is Paul saying when he's saying godliness with contentment is a great gain in contrast to thinking of godliness as being something to give you personal gain? He's saying that being like Christ is the sufficient thing that you need. It's your all-sufficient need. You don't actually need anything else other than to be made more like Christ, right? And that's where our minds have to be driven to. Peter echoes this when he goes into Second uh, Peter. Second Peter, chapter one. He echoes this and he says, blessed be the God, wait, I'm reading First Peter. <laughs> I was like, that is not, that's not Second Peter. <laughs> First Peter, or Second Peter, here we go. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us how many things? All things that pertain to life and godliness. You see, contentment, the word is actually only used one other time, and I won't tell you where it's used because that'll give a hint about kind of where you need to find it. Its use here and therefore its translation is talking about having that sense of self-sufficiency, having the sense that you have all that you need possessed within yourself, right? And so what we see here is that Peter is saying that everything that we need is given to us by Christ, Right? that all that is necessary, all that is required, all that you could want or desire, it's found in being like Christ through his precious promises. It says here that we would become what partakers of the divine nature, right? The conclusion is, is that the two of them, Paul and Peter, they really believe that being more like Christ, being more of a partaker of the divine nature is all that they need, right? So how do they get to that spot? Right? Like, I mean, I can say it and you can go, yeah, amen, I agree with that, right? You know, but like, but like, do we agree with that? You know, I love working with the high schoolers, uh, the high school boys we meet on Tuesdays and they're super challenging because unlike adults, they're unafraid to ask questions, right? They're unafraid to ask real questions. They don't care necessarily if they, they look stupid in asking them, right? Or better yet, they don't think that they already know the answer, right? Typically, I have found, even in my own life with age, right, I, just, I just sit there and I'm like, I've already figured this out, right? And then like, you know, something happens and you're like, I have no idea, right? <laughs> you know? Um, so at least teenagers are pretty much in that spot where they're usually like, I have no idea, so why don't we just talk about it, right? So it, it challenges me because it brings about these questions. And most of the time, the question revolves around something like this. We've got a principle of the Lord and we've got an action that we want to take, right? And somewhere there's a disconnect, right? Somewhere there's a, Justin, how, I hear what you're saying, but like, how do I go from point A to point B? Because like, I can intellectually affirm that, hey, what you said sounds true, I see it in the Bible, but like, I find in myself no power to do anything about what you just said, right? My life still looks basically the same, right? And so it's like, where do we go to move from point A to point B, right? And so Paul takes us on his journey, Right, so go, now let's go back to Philippians 4, and we'll go to the most famous verse in Philippians first, um, which is hard for me to say because so many of the verses are so powerful that I'm like, well, I think almost every verse is the famous verse, but this one is dead. Once I read it, you'll be like, oh, yeah, 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 everybody knows this verse. This is probably one of the, not most misquoted, but the most quoted out of context verses of all time. Because basically, if anybody has watched any sports endeavor for like any length of time when somebody wins a championship this is the inevitable verse that they talk about which once we like explore the meaning of this verse you're like well this is a stupid verse to kind of apply to that context but whatever you do you do what you want so philippians 4:12 he says here 4:13 sorry it's not 4:12 what am i anyway um, philippians 4:13 he says i can do all things through christ who strengthens me right like this is such a famous verse, and such a famous verse, and people know that it's famously taken out of context. I saw a shirt. There's a famous shirt out there. 
I don't know if it's actually that famous, but whatever. It says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, right? And so this verse is well known even in the world, right? Verses like John 3.16, verses like love is patient, love is kind, right? That was thrown into a secular song. That was like appalling to listen to. I was like, why are you throwing that into this song? This isn't matching, but anyway, right? So there are a whole slew of verses that people know in the world and that maybe we are familiar with, but we don't actually really know what it's saying, right? They have no idea what it's saying. So we, let's take a look. Let's take a look together because it'll, it'll cement our journey through Philippians, right? So, and he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, this phrase, is actually, that's actually a pretty bad translation, honestly, of the way that it's phrased there. Because what it, the, the way that it, it, it's stated, right, my best rearrangement would say that in every little thing I am strengthened by Christ who strengthens me, right? That's what he, that, right? Like we, we say, we look at it and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we think like, I can jump off of a mountain and fly because I think Christ will sustain me through it because I can do all things through Christ. That's not what he's talking about, right? He's talking about that in every situation of life, there is strength that he finds in Christ, right? It's not even his own strength. It's not even him doing necessarily whatever he wants to do. It's him being in the midst of what could be considered really discontented times and finding there the strength to remain content. Finding there that he still has all that he needs or could want. Because look at what it says just before, just before this verse. Verse 11, he says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things, I have learned both to be full and be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? He's talking about whether he has a lot or a little. Both present themselves with their own unique challenges. They are both trials. One of the lies that we find ourselves telling ourselves pretty often in this world, since we're so affluent, is that money and monetary gain and possessions will cure our discontent right? That if I were to just have a little bit more, then I would be okay where I'm at. Or if I would just get out of the job that I'm in, I would be better off there. But the reality that Paul is teaching us here, that Paul is expressing, is that your contentment is not circumstantial. Your contentment is something that you bring with you. It's not something that the, the world dictates to you whether you are content. The circumstances of life don't determine whether you're content. You take your contentment with you into every circumstance of life. And this is a great gain because when we sit in a place where we know that we have all that we need, then we are free to do whatever God wants us to do. Look, it's the fear of death before Christ was there that trapped us in this cycle of sin. It's the fear of loss and death now that would keep us from being sanctified, right? That would keep us not free because we think that God will not keep his promise, that he will not meet us there, and so we hold back because we don't think he has all that we need, but if we sit in this place of being like Christ and knowing that he is all that we need, suddenly the whole world, the whole abundant life that Christ promised is available to us. So let's track the journey that Paul takes to get there. In order to get there, let me first note that Paul says that he learned it. So he learned it, which we just read that. He says, no, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, right? I have learned in whatever state. So this means Paul had a teacher. This means Paul didn't find his contentment in himself. The world's view of contentment often sits kind of twofold. Either look within yourself to be pleased with yourself and just kind of accept who you are, 
and then be content with that. Or kind of capitulate to the sense that like there's nothing you can do about anything anyway, so you might as well just kind of be okay with where you're at, right? These kind of two things where you're kind of sitting and you're like, well, either I gave up or I'm focused on myself. Like those are like kind of the two options that the world presents for what you can do to keep yourself contented. And honestly, those are pretty sad options because we know And maybe if you don't know, you can spend time reading Ecclesiastes, that if you spend all of your time either trying to please yourself, make yourself wiser, gain yourself all your possessions just for anything that you're doing for yourself, Solomon's conclusion is that it is the vanity of vanities, grasping for the wind. Noah is taking us through the book of Ecclesiastes, and he gives a great picture for that. The word vanity there in Ecclesiastes really means vapor, right? And it means, so like when you see vapor, you can't grab it, right? And so Noah always gives us this picture to begin as we start. He's like, it's as if there's a, something that's promised to you by the, by the thing that you're seeking, and you go to grab it, and it's not really there. My son, he's four and a half months now, and he loves bath time. Well, he's like chill in bath time. He kind of gets happy sometimes, but he's, kinda, he's not fussy during bath time, so I'll call that a win, right? Uh, <clears throat> and uh, he fits in our, in our sink because it's, ex- it's an extremely large sink. It doesn't have one of those middle partitions to separate the two sides of the dishes. It's just one large kind of thing, and so we can sit him in there, even though he's kind of getting a little bit too big for that. If you've seen him, you know what I mean. Um, but uh, uh, the faucet has a setting, right, where it does like, instead of just a constant stream, it just does like a little like trinkly kind of stream. And so we turn, I turned that on a couple of days back and, and Judah's just sitting there. That's my son's name, Judah. And um, he's sitting there and he's like looking at it. And for the most part in his life, anything that he's reached out to grab, he can grab and put in his mouth. Like, that's the object of why he grabs things. He's just like, and it starts coming towards his mouth, right? That's why he's as large as he is. Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) But but, um, he's, uh, so he sees this stream and he goes to grab it and then he, he closes his fist and the most confused little face came on it. He was like, he opened his hand again. He was like, and then he put the other hand and he was like, he had no idea what to do. He was like, this isn't what I want. And this is exactly the, the, the problem when we chase for contentment outside of what the Lord offers to us, right? Is that there is no other place to find it is that we were made, hear me out, we were literally made to be only pleased in the Father. Your eyes were made to see the beauty of God. Your ears were made to hear his voice. Your lips were made to praise his name, right? Any other purpose that you assign to them outside of that falls short of what you were made to do. And you will always be discontented when you are falling short of the purpose of the glory of what God has made you to have in him. And so Paul learned this through the Spirit, and so we have to receive of the Spirit. And as a quick side note, in order to receive of the Spirit, you have to yield to the work of the Spirit. Like, that's pretty much, that's like my go-to for like, if, you, if you're talking about receiving the Spirit, you're talking about yielding to what He's doing. He's a person, He does things. He's not like, it's not like you go into a room and you light incense and you float and meditate for a while and then you're being spiritual, right? You have to know what the Spirit is doing and conform yourself and obey what it is that He is doing in your life. You know what I'm saying? So, in uh, John 16, Jesus gives a really long explanation about the ministry of the Spirit. One of the particular things he says is that the, the Spirit will take of what it is and give it to you, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 2, towards the end, Paul gives us kind of, I would say, a better phrasing of that, right? Where he says that we have been given the Spirit. He goes on this whole rant about how nobody knows what's in a man except the Spirit of a man, therefore nobody knows what's in God except the Spirit of God and such and such. And then right at the end, he says, we have been given the Spirit that we might know all the things that we have in Christ, right? Like that, that is the purpose, one of the chief purposes of the Spirit in your life is that his primary work is to continuously pour out what it is by God's love he has given you through Christ, 
right? And so to walk in that is to receive that. And so Paul is going to list for us through Philippians six different things that the Spirit has taught him, truths that he has embraced, received, and obeyed. So the first set here in chapter 1, and when we come to verse 12, Paul is talking about the fact that he's in chains and the gospel is being spread forward in spite of the fact that he's in chains, right? Um, as a matter of fact, it's going all throughout where he is and furthermore, those who are outside are spreading the gospel either in spite, right, out of spite for him or out of being emboldened by him, right? There's this, this so, and he says, his conclusion is, as long as the gospel is going out, right? He's like, I guess it's great. And then he says this. So we pick it up in verse 19. In verse 19, he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, right? Whether by life or or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? I mean, that's an insane sentence to utter. Because most of the time when we think and when we even pray for others, we're typically being like, Lord, I hope you get them out of that situation. Like if it's in a tough situation, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, in China, in Russia, in areas that are far more oppressive than where we live. And our typical prayer sometimes revolves around, Lord, could you either strengthen them or, you know, can you get them out of there? Like when, forget which Afghan city was overrun recently, and our brothers and sisters were trapped in there, and it was like the, a lot of the prayers were like, get them out. Get them out. It's, it's so devastating that the Taliban has conquered that city again. Get them out. And Paul, he's telling the Philippians, he's like, I understand your prayer for me, but I'm super confident that I will get out of this. Delivery means to be taken out of, right? But he doesn't, he doesn't mean that he's going to get out of jail. He means that no matter what happens, it is a victory and a deliverance on Christ's end, right? That Christ will deliver him either by life or by death. And he, he finishes off this part as he goes down. He concludes and he says this as he's encouraging, encouraging the Philippians in this mindset. He says, 29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The word granted is the word gift. A gift of the Lord in your life is that you suffer. You see, a lot of times we think of the suffering that we could go through. We think of, I want to live my life for Christ. And we don't have this mindset that Paul has where he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And therefore, we push back against the notion of suffering. Because we think to ourselves, along with the rest of the world, that suffering is a thing to be avoided. That suffering is something that God works in spite of. What we have learned in Christ is that God does not work in spite of suffering, but through suffering. Our greatest salvation came how? Through the suffering of Christ. You see, and so Paul is inviting us into this mindset where we don't just consider suffering something to be tolerated, but rather something to view as a gift of the Lord for what purpose? Well, he says it right here back up at the top. He says, this was in verse 21, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So the conclusion that the Spirit has taught him that he wants us to understand is that Personal suffering has an infinite purpose in promoting Jesus Christ. And that should be enough. And that should be enough. 
so that way you go through anything to glorify him. I put it this way as well. It is enough that my Lord is made glorious by my life. It is enough that that is the case. I will note this as a side note. Your correlation to how much you are willing to suffer is told to us in 1 Peter that that is, a, is correlated to how much you will be joyful at his appearing. Check this out. This is 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 12 of 1 Peter 4. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. One of the greatest blessings of suffering and of suffering loss is that you are left with nothing but Christ. You see, it's really hard to be excited about Christ's coming if you still think you have something on earth worth holding on to. Like, well, before I was a married man, and I know a lot of young people kind of say this as well, they're like, man, I can't wait for Christ to come back, but like, I hope I get married first, <laughs> right? They still have something they're like trying to accomplish, or I hope I get to start my career, or I hope I get to do something, or I hope I experience this first. God wants to remove our hope in any other thing other than himself which will necessarily involve the loss of many things, that we might find that all that we truly need and all that we've ever truly had is him. And so we must embrace this mindset of suffering for Christ to glorify Christ as something beautiful, something that Paul says to him is, he's like, I will magnify Christ by life or by death. Secondly, as we jump ahead to chapter 2, Paul goes on and he talks about humility and he, he encourages the Philippian church there to embrace the mind of Christ, right? To embrace the mind of Christ. And I'll pick it up in verse five. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that every name of, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on the earth, those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me go ahead and jump down to verse 17 after he gives some instructions with a therefore. Right? He says this in 17, yes, if I am being poured out, and then again in italics as a drink offering, on the sacrifice and service of your faith, this is very important. If I am being poured out on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad. What's Paul's mind? What's Christ's mind? Well, we look at Christ's mind. He wanted to set aside his glory with the Father to service our faith. What is Paul's mindset? If I am poured out as a sacrifice in service for your faith, I am glad. Contentment must always begin by being outwardly focused. You will never find contentment as you look inward to yourself to be content. Paul has now listed two places that he's focused on in his life, glorifying Jesus and servicing others' faith. Neither of those take into account what Paul has in mind about himself. He's focused on something beyond himself. And we'll actually see what it is that he considers about himself in the next part. But that humble obedience to the will of the Lord to see faith built in others. Like this should be the, the driving motivator in what we do while we're here 
is that, hey, wherever I am, I can say, I can help somebody else's faith. Am I in a bad situation in my job? Is my family life tough? Well, I can be content because it is yet another opportunity through humble obedience to the Lord that I can build faith. Continuing on, his third thing that he learned in chapter 3, in chapter 3, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He goes on, and then he says this, verse 3 of chapter 3, We are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might have confidence in the flesh. He's like, I could like boast about myself if I wanted to. <laughs> if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. So he lists his qualifications. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning the law, I'm a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Can't really be more zealous than that as far as like, if you're being a good Jewish person, right? You think that Jesus's followers are a cult and you, you're so zealous about it that you actually persecute them, right? Like there's not really a higher form of zeal than that. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But look at this. What things were gained to me, these I have counted as lost for Christ. These I have counted as lost for Christ. This ties back to the suffering and the loss. So much of our discontent is because we feel we have lost something. Something happens in our life and we sit and we go, oh, I'm really sad that I lost this thing. And typically it's, it's a personal thing. It's something that influences like your personal state of being. I'm really sad that I lost this job because the money was nice. I'm really upset that I got caught sinning because I didn't want to face the consequences. Things like this. What Paul is saying, or... And then on the flip side, all of the things that we could achieve, right, even within like a ministry setting, we're like, oh, I really hope I, you know, preach to a million people or, or um, I, I have these, these goals and these, these ideas of what I want to accomplish in life and I would love for people to give me the respect that I deserve as a leader, as a pastor or whatever, right? All of these things. Or as a parent, you know, I mean, we all relate to that one. <laughs> I wish my kids would respect me more, you know. Um, <laughs> Right, all of these things that we could say, like, I want this status. And Paul says everything that he could have considered a gain in the world, where you could look at him and go, He's accomplished that. Right? Look at that guy, he's accomplished that thing. Right? He goes, Garbage. He says, That's he literally says, I count all things loss. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And look, there is, and count them as rubbish. He literally calls it trash. Are we at the point, has the Spirit taken us to the point where we sit and we look out at the world and we go, there is nothing it has to offer me? You see, because if we still think the world has something to offer us, we will still be tempted away from where our true contentment will sit. As a quick note, something else to, to recognize, just as more motivation towards that. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, 2 Peter 3, 11 to 12. It's 1 John 2, 15 to 17, 2 Peter 3, 11 to 12. They talk about the fact that the world is passing away. Like, I was thinking about this the other day, and being a guy who's in the science fields, I appreciate some scientific achievements back in, in the day that people accomplished, things like that. But then I was thinking, and I was like, you know, the Lord's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Two things come to my mind. One, the physics probably isn't going to be the same, particularly since, as he describes it, it sounds like a cube, and it's weird. But... But secondly, <laughs> but secondly, anything that anyone built here will be gone. Every quantum computer, every AI, every electric vehicle, 
everything that they did to try to solve global warming or climate change, I guess is what they call it. Every political endeavor, every kingdom that man has established is all going to be gone. And guess what? None of them will be remembered because everyone will be bowing the knee to Christ. Nobody will be praising anyone else's achievements. In his kingdom, the praise will always be upon the Lord and what he has done. Like, what is the point of building anything here? There is no point. There's absolutely no point in building anything here. So we have to come to Paul's place and let go. Let go of all of that. Call it rubbish for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Pushing onward, we got two more things three more things to finish up with here. The fourth one uh, is for us at the end of chapter 3, and it's in verse 12, so I guess that's not really the end, it's kind of midway through. Um, But it says, not that I have already attained or that I am perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul understands that he is always and forever, until he dies, going to be a work in progress. And again, so much of our discontent sometimes, when maybe we've got the other three things kind of nailed down, but so much of our discontent can sit on the fact that we're not there yet. That we wake up and we go, I'm still not totally like Christ. Look, It is not a failure that you are not yet perfected. It is exactly how Christ intended you to live your life by faith in his spirit. Not seeing the completed work yet, but pressing forward in full hope and confidence that the work will be completed. And so we've got to sit with that and tell ourselves day by day, I am not there yet, but I forget what's behind and I push forward and I keep pushing forward in every, sorry, (laughs) in every, in every instance of failure, I get up again and I push forward. A righteous man falls seven times. That's a complete failure in case you're tracking the number seven's use in the Bible. A righteous man can fail completely but he'll get back up again. He'll get back up again. This has a double meaning in that sense, though. We have to, in order to remain content, we also have to be willing to take correction because we're not a completed work. Because we're not a completed work. And so we have to live a life basically ready to be corrected. Hebrews 12, where is it 13? I'm going to look at my notes real quick. Nope, I was right, it's Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, he talks about how the Father corrects those whom he loves and scourges every son in whom he delights. He literally says that if you are not corrected by the Lord, you're not his son. You see, being a Christian is not about feeling right all the time about what you're doing or about who you are, or knowing what's right. Being a Christian is about submitting to the fact that you need God and you need his correction every day. Like, you should, you should wake up and be like, you should, at the end of a task that you hopefully have done for the Lord, like at the end of this message or whatever, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to be like, I probably did something wrong that was worth correcting, Right? Like we laugh, but that should actually be our mindset in everything because we get so offended when people come and they're like, hey, you were wrong there. And we're like, I could never be wrong. <laughs> Do you know who I am? I woke up right. <laughs> like, you know, but that's not the mind of Christ. That's not what the Spirit has taught us. That is you being prideful about who you are but we come to the Lord in humility recognizing our need. 
you know, and so we have to live a life ready to be corrected. The last two things here are actually actions that he kind of takes in response to these four truths. So the last two come in Philippians 4, and uh, they uh, come on Philippians 4, 6 and Philippians 4, 8, and we'll finish up with these two. So Philippians 4, 6, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. Right? You want to be content, you want to be at peace in whatever situation you're in, you have to give the anxiety to the Lord with thanksgiving. You have to give the anxiety to the Lord with thanksgiving. And your conclusion in doing so, as you are doing so, has to flow from this reality that you actually believe this sentence, that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. The phrase there, when it talks about surpassing, is talking about that it is greater than, right? And there's the word all understanding here. Giving your anxiety to the Lord and not getting a response that says, hey, this is why you're going through what you're going through is a pathway to peace. Like, God's conclusion or God's methodology is not that you would know why everything happens in your life. That you would pray to Him and that you would leave that situation going, I am fully aware of what's going on and what to do and all this. No, what he wants, the peace that comes, comes because you are at peace because you know and trust the one to whom you've given your anxiety. That giving it to him is better than knowing how to solve the problem yourself. Think about Job. If you've ever read Job, it's a really long, depressing book. Right? His friends give him terrible advice throughout the whole book. It's just terrible, terrible advice. The Lord comes and literally interrupts the last guy who's talking and says, who is this who darkens wisdom? Right? You're like, wow, that's a lot. Right? <laughs> it's a pretty bold statement to make. Um, it's the Lord. He can make those bold statements. Um, and if you read his response to Job, he does not tell him why anything happened in his life. He, he doesn't go, yeah, you know, one day Satan came in as the angels were going to and fro. And Satan just happened to be around. He was like, hey, Job, he's a dude who I want to like prove to you won't follow you if you take away his blessings. Like God never brings up this background scenario to Job. Instead, he goes, hey, Job, were you around when I created everything? Can you save yourself? Okay, let me try an easier one. Can you defeat the Leviathan? Right? <laughs> right? Let me lower the level for you here. Okay, you can't do any of those things? Then trust me. Then trust me. Guys, when we, when we pray to him, when we give our anxieties to him, it is an act of us saying, God, I don't need to know how to fix this. I just need to know that you're with me in it. And then finally, the last thing that he uh, tells us here to focus upon, finally, brethren, he even, he says finally, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So the last action really to take in response to these truths, really there's like four truths, two actions, six truths in total, you know, whatever, is that we have to become experts at finding the goodness of the Lord in all situations. Like, a lot of times we talk about the freedom in Christ that we have, and then we forget passages like in Romans 6, where it says we become slaves of God unto righteousness. Where we're like, I'm free, so I do whatever I want. And we're like, well, no, that's not freedom. Because like as Christians, we're actually told, and told here too, that like 
we have to actually confine our thinking. 2 Corinthians tells it another way, where he says that we have to bring every thought into captivity unto Christ. Like, we don't get to just browse Facebook and focus on all of the things that are out there and think that that is our path to contentment. Our path to contentment lies in trapping our minds upon one singular focus. That is, the goodness of God in all things. Romans 8.28 isn't a cliche or a joke or something. He says that God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. That means that in all things, there is something good to praise Him about. And so Paul, he spends his time and encourages the Philippians to spend their time finding the good. And so if we want to live a life where we look like Christ, if we want to not just take the exhortation to be content and then just fail because we're trying to be content, or worse, we're looking at contentment as something to just please ourselves, if we want to fight those things, then we have to embrace what the Spirit has taught us. We have to walk in the truth, walk in the light, submit to the Spirit. So we'll just recap those six points, and I'll just highlight them by the phrase that Paul uses in the passage himself. So the first one, to live is Christ, to die is gain. The second one, if I am being poured out on the sacrifice and service of your faith, then I am glad and rejoice with you all. The third one, what things were gained to me, these I have counted as loss for Christ. The fourth one, I do not count myself to apprehended, but this thing I do, I press forward. The fifth one, let your requests be made known to God. And the last one, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. We do thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your spirit speaks truth to us. Lord, help us to receive that, to embrace it, to conduct our lives by it, Lord. We receive the spirit by faith. Help us to put our faith in these things, Lord, that it would lead to the actions, Lord, the, the prayer the confining of our minds to, to all that you're doing in us, through us, outside of us, Lord. Lord, that we be those who are focused upon you. Lord, we want that great gain of being like you and knowing that that is all that we need. So Lord, lead us to that place. Strengthen us by your spirit. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.